I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We have a guest from Credit Suisse, that's Wilson Irvin, who's vice chairman in the group executive at Credit Suisse. This week, we'll be discussing the latest changes in the Basel rules, also a look at Brexit and an update from the City of London. And finally, Swiss private banking. Is it gone forever? First, though, to the Basel rules. Now, these are the rules that govern the international rulebook on banking. The so-called Basel IV rules have just been finalised. And Caroline, you've been looking at exactly what they mean. Yep, this is the long-awaited reforms to the existing Basel III rules that came in in the wake of the financial crisis. And I say long-awaited, they've been about four years in the making. And for the last 18 months, two years of that process, there have long been promises that we were about to come to a deal, but that nothing was agreed until everything was agreed. And whilst Basel III, in the wake of the crisis, significantly pushed up the amount of capital banks have to hold, so that's the numerator in the fraction that gets you to a bank's capital ratio, this last set of measures have been looking at the denominator, the risk-weighted assets. And the concern amongst regulators has been that banks have been gaming how they calculate their risk-weighted assets, therefore giving themselves a more favourable capital ratio. So what the announcement on Friday essentially unveils are stricter rules around how banks calculate those risk-weighted assets. And what everyone was waiting for was the exact calibration of what's called the output floor, which is essentially a cap on how divergent banks' own risk models can be from the more cautious versions that regulators put out when they're calculating things like mortgages or loans on their balance sheet. And that ultimately is set now at 72.5%. However, what I should stress is that there's going to be a very long implementation period. This doesn't have to come into force until 2022, and then there'll be a five-year transition. So we're looking at 2027 before these rules become totally effective. And that's nearly 20 years after the onset of the financial crisis. So question really how effective Basel is as a rulemaking institution. Let's go over now to Wilson Irvin, who is vice chairman of Credit Suisse in the group executive's office there. Wilson, thanks very much for joining us. Well, you've heard what Caroline has to say in terms of the overall summary of things. What do you think is the most interesting element of Basel IV? Well, thanks, Patrick, and great to be here. You know, I guess, first of all, if you step back, this is a bit of a win for the global system. I think there were people that were worried that with some of the recent political tendencies that getting to a deal would be difficult. And so this is a win in that respect. Uh, We do have now a a global capital rule that is sort of core to the Basel process. That's why Basel got started uh, about 30 years ago with Basel I. 
think that is a win for globally active banks. We do have a benchmark that we can all relate to, and that actually is pretty important for a system that functions well, that doesn't have a race to the bottom, and where people can compare banks across each other. I think in terms of the most recent deal, I think what people noticed was a longer phase-in period. I think that's been particularly important for Europe, which is going to be bearing the brunt of some of the increases. The larger European banks will go up by about 15% in terms of capital RWA requirements. But there's being phased in over a long period of time, and I think that's important because Europe has just started to have a good economic recovery, and I think people are keen not to disrupt that and to make sure that the banks can keep lending and support that recovery. What do you think, in terms of the most welcome elements being dropped from the original proposals? Because obviously what we've ended up in terms of a final deal on Basel IV is quite different and, as you suggest, less extreme than the original proposals. I think there have been a a couple of things, and depending on which of the many interactions you're talking about, I think the phasing down of the floor to 72.5% is welcome from my perspective. As a former chief risk officer, having risk weights that are actually sensitive to risk is very important to running a bank properly. And so having a little bit more room for internal models and a little bit less pressure from standardized rules, I think, is actually very helpful to better risk management. So I think that was welcome. There have also been a a number of technical issues. We've seen some changes, for example, in how the credit risk calculations work that I think are helpful. Probably one of the bigger areas that is still ongoing is some of the rules around market risk. Uh, Those numbers are actually not in this, the QIS impact number that I mentioned to you, and will probably increase the market risk weights uh, somewhat further. And there's still some work ongoing there, and I think some of the communications around giving that a proper amount of time to settle down to get those calculations better balanced was also quite welcome from my seat. So what you're talking about here is the so-called fundamental review of the trading book, which could have affected some big investment banks quite profoundly. And as you're suggesting, this has been pushed back, I think, by, what, a couple of years, is it? That's correct. So the timing there has been moved back. The impacts, at least as we see them now, are still pretty significant on that slice of risk. That slice of risk is not the biggest one for banks overall. It tends to be on the order of 5 to 10 to 12 percent of the big global banks. But some of the increases there have been material. The internal models approach, the latest numbers are an increase of 40 to 50 percent, and the standardized rules somewhat beyond that. So I think that is something that the two years of additional calibration, it's perhaps the most complex area in Basel, that those two years of extra work will help us get a better balanced result and hopefully mitigate the impact back closer to the Basel targets, which was not to have a dramatic jump in risk that could potentially result in some unintended consequences, but a better balanced approach. Well, I suppose the most heartening thing of all, arguably, is that even in an era of Donald Trump and Brexit, we can still get a global deal negotiated on this kind of stuff. Wilson Irvin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Let's move on now to our second topic and, yet again, Brexit. But, Laura, there's been some interesting developments that you've been writing about in terms of not only the first stage of a Brexit deal that the UK government has negotiated with the EU27, but also what banks are thinking about in terms of their next stage of planning. Okay, so let's probably deal with the first stage agreement first because it's kind of the most simple thing to deal with. So Brexit negotiations have now passed on to phase two 
Bankers have been pretty underwhelmed by this development. They say that they don't really take much heart from what's happened and that basically it would have been very bad if things hadn't gone to phase two. But they're certainly not changing their plans because things have gone to phase two. So they're not super excited that what has been agreed is going to lead to the maintenance of the single market. And they don't see it as being major progress. It's more the absence of anything bad happening than something spectacularly good happening. Because they'd always factored in the idea that some kind of trade negotiation would be dealt with in phase two. So it's as planned in a way. Yeah, and they're not taking much heart from the idea that if the UK can't do a deal on the Irish border, it would maintain the regulatory alignment with the EU because that is something which could theoretically be a very positive thing for the banks, but the banks certainly aren't counting on that as their base case at this stage. Right. Beyond that? What we have also been looking at is we have a big project around Brexit going out this week and one of the things we're talking to banks about is as we get to the end of the year, there was a real concentration that banks would get to the point of no return by the first quarter of 2018 where they would be putting in place irrevocable plans. So if there wasn't a very clear sign that there would be good things in whatever the Brexit deal is, then banks would be moving things which they couldn't then shift back. Now, banks have been moving away from that position. And rather than saying the first quarter of 2018 is a point of no return, we have some banks actually telling us now privately there is, in fact, no point of no return. And that if there was a brilliant Brexit deal 10 minutes before midnight on the last day in March 2019, they would in fact try to undo some of their moves so far and they certainly wouldn't do any more. And you can see a little bit of that in terms of how banks are actually planning. So banks are trying to move the minimum number of staff possible while still being regulatory compliant for the earliest days of Brexit. And they're doing that with a view to it being easier to take down in the event that there is a better than anticipated outcome. So the base case is still there is a bad outcome. But they're now saying that if there is a better one, they want to keep nimble and agile and they want to be able to respond to that in real time rather than drawing a kind of imagined cutoff sometime in the first quarter of 2018 where they would be taking big decisions that can't be undone. Now, I do need to qualify as well and say that that is a position of several banks. There are also others who do still argue there has been permanent damage done to the City of London's standing, particularly when it comes to their parent companies. They say that even in the event that the UK decided to vote to undo Brexit, to stay in the EU after all, they would have to move some staff out of the UK at this stage because their parent companies sitting in countries outside of the EU had an unshakable view about how the City of London was a really solid, dependable place to place their operations. And that view has been tarnished. And they say that in the eyes of some parent companies, they will never again hold the UK in the same esteem as they did once because Brexit has been a watershed moment and has kind of taught them that all of their previous beliefs about the UK's stability and dependability were actually based on nothing. But in the meantime, as you say, it does feel as if the early stage moves, the numbers of people who are going to be moving this first phase are probably lower than kind of initial estimates suggested. So no one's really talking about thousands of staff moving from individual institutions. Now it's a matter of low hundreds. The numbers are far, far lower and you can read in detail about how they're lower in Wednesday's paper. But the numbers have certainly come back a lot as banks have really looked into the logistics of what they expect to have to move and when. Very good. Let's move on to our final story and sticking with you, Laura, on the topic of Swiss banking. You and our Swiss correspondent, Ralph Atkins, had a very interesting piece the other day about Swiss private banks and whether the golden era of Swiss banking is over. I think you came to a fairly bleak conclusion, really. 
I think we concluded that the golden era is over and probably has been over for some time. And by the golden era, we mean the era where people valued Swissness for its own sake. So you were willing to pay more to a Swiss bank. I mean, there was a prestige factor, which you still find in some of the Asian economies. When I go to Asia, sometimes there is still a belief that it is a good thing to have a Swiss private banker just because it sounds good and you want to be seen going into them. But I think generally the advantage of Swissness has definitely fallen. They've also seen big outflows of client money because of the various tax regulation processes that have been going on all over the world. And that basically meant that people had to declare all of the money in their various bank accounts and there was less advantage. It became very difficult to hide money in accounts and to avoid tax in that way. And that was a big earnings hit because money that came out from that, it was very high margin money because if you were getting two returns, one was the actual investment return, the other was the tax shield, that then made you happy to pay quite a high margin for that service. If you're only getting the investment return, then you think about the margin in a different way. So not only have the Swiss banks lost huge amounts of client funds, that's been some of their highest margin funds. So that has certainly been a big blow to them as well. So if the appeal on the grounds of secrecy has gone and the appeal on the grounds of tax evasion slash avoidance has gone largely and the prestige is gone, what's left? Expertise. So the Swiss banks can genuinely claim that they have been doing private banking at a higher level for longer than anybody else in the world. And they have built up a lot of expertise. They've also gone big into some of the Asian markets where there is a lot of growth. So they do have some levers that they can pull. And increasingly from Credit Suisse and from UBS in particular, they're playing the integration between their investment bank and the private bank. And they're using that to structure things for clients and to provide a more holistic service. In the case of Credit Suisse for Asia, they've actually merged all of their operations into a single Asia Pact division, which looks at clients in a very holistic way. So I think Credit Suisse and UBS in particular will be able to sell that. Julius Baer has been going into Asia quite big as well. And we may see some more Asia activity from Pictase, which has recently hired Julius Baer as chief executive, who was very Asia focused. So I think if you look at the world from a geographic perspective, they're in the right places to grow. And they do have some expertise and some kind of in-house assets that should protect them somewhat going into the next era. And as the lovely opening anecdote in your big piece that you wrote with Ralph conveyed, they also sought out niggling little things like being able to find a lawyer in a far-flung location. And not just that, they can get you on the list for the limited edition Ferraris, they can get your kids on the waiting list for certain schools. So they do have a whole services aspect that I think is hard for other banks to replicate. Very good. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Caroline here in the studio and our guest from Credit Suisse, Wilson Irving. That's also it for this year. We'll be back on the 2nd of January and that's the day, of course, before MIFID II shakes the European financial markets. So we'll be reporting on that, among other things. Remember, in the meantime, that you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.